Uh, the rest of you remaining in here, you can uh, turn in the Bible if you have one to Matthew chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 19 through 24. You can also find that printed in your bulletin. Um, thanks for your patience with our mysterious disappearing ink on our uh, uh, PowerPoint each week. We have no idea what's doing that. Um, but, you know, it, it puts us to the test to try to remember song lyrics when the, the words uh, mysteriously disappear. So uh, we're looking into it. We don't really know what's going on, but, you know, it is what it is. So, um, Well, as you might know, I've got three daughters, and uh, one of them is a teenager. One's uh, very much on her way to being a teenager. And um, the older that they get, the more willing they are to tell me when something is, is really awkward or cringe that I do. And um, it's just amazing. They can be this, these beacons of honesty and feedback. Um, and I see this especially if I'm trying to have a, a, like a serious conversation with them, which are, are, are few and far between. Let's say it's something about friendships or maybe something about boys. Um, anything that requires some degree of vulnerability and, um, you know, even just a minute or two in these conversations where, where I'm trying to connect with them and talk about something really meaningful, um, I can, they physically kind of start to squirm a little bit. I can see them physically being uncomfortable with this conversation. And they'll say something like, Ugh, Dad, can we please be done talking about this? And they're just ready to just not have this conversation anymore. Uh, the response can be similar when preachers talk about money. Uh, physical squirming, ugh, can we please be done talking about this? Um, money can be so uncomfortable to talk about. Uh, it can feel tacky, it can feel like too vulnerable, or it's just like a place you just don't go in conversation, and, and that frequently transfers over to the way the church talks about money, or maybe does not talk about money for those reasons. Um, but here's the thing, money has a lot of power over us. Um, it, it takes up a lot of space in our lives. How often are you thinking about spending or saving or debt or will I have enough? Or maybe you're just living with constant low-grade anxiety about your financial situation. It holds a lot of power in our lives. And Jesus talked about money more than any other single issue. Uh, so what if, you know, rather than being a topic that we avoided, what if reflecting on our own views about money and our own use of money was actually a deeper window into what our hearts really value? We're continuing our series this morning called Following the Way, where we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. It's Jesus' most famous sermon that he ever preached, and he hits all these different super personal topics in our lives, like money. And this is sort of like a part two for Jesus within the short three-chapter Sermon on the Mount on money, um, where he started chapter six talking about our giving to the poor. And he talked about some bad reasons to do it and some good reasons to do it. This is later on in chapter six, um, where he's going to continue with this theme of money. But now he's going to speak to the issue of our hearts. And he's going to force us to reflect on what we really treasure. All right, so with this in mind, let me read for us Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. It says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, 
there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will, he will hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The word of the Lord. Father, we do pause to thank you for your word and pray that you would be with us now. Would you speak to us by your Holy Spirit? Speak in this important area of our lives as we think about what we really treasure in life. And Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, occasionally when uh, we're having dinner and like some, some food falls on the floor or something like that, or let's say we're trying to clean out something in the garbage disposal in the sink, or there's just some weird mishmash of ingredients and gross food that doesn't go together, um, occasionally I'll, I'll pick it up and put it in my hands and hold it up to my family and say, how much money would it take for you to eat this? And the grosser the food is, the better the question is, and then I'll start... Um, naming some prices. And I'll say, all right, and this is all hypothetical, of course. No one's getting any money. But I'm like, all right, $20. Would you eat this for $20? No? All right, how about $100? Would you eat this for $100? And I'll just keep going up. $10,000. Would you eat this for $10,000? Think about how much money that is. Just eat this. And um, immediately as you're looking at this nasty handful of food, um, you're, you're starting to think, all right, is that worth it? What's my number to eat this thing? And I won't name names in my family, but there's one person in my family that almost always says yes to the very first number offered. Um, it's typically like $20, and uh, so this person has a pretty low number and was looking to make some money on the side, I guess. Um, there's another person in my house who always refuses, no matter how much money is offered. $10,000, no way. A million dollars, no way. I, and I'm just like, $1 million? You wouldn't eat this for $1 million? No, no way. How much power does money have over you? Maybe you've got a lot of it. Maybe you just have barely any of it. But how much power does it have over you? We can think about this sermon sort of as a guided reflection from Jesus with three things for us to reflect on in our own lives. And these will be our three points this morning. So first, what am I treasuring? Secondly, what am I focused on? And third, what am I serving? So first thing for us to reflect on is what am I treasuring? What does he mean by treasuring? Look at verse 21. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Um, he, he's saying that there's this connection between where we lay up treasure and what our hearts love. Uh, that, that the laying up of our treasure leads to a laying up of our hearts. And, and that's, so these are not just like financial investments or deposits that we're making, but these are sort of love or worship deposits or investments that we make. You could almost think about it as like an actual treasure chest uh, full of like gold and precious jewels that we just keep putting things into. Kids, maybe you have a piggy bank at home where you put the money in the piggy bank and you sort of store up that treasure. Or maybe there's like a jewelry box at home where there's valuable rings and necklaces that has a special place for it. These are a collection of things that are precious to us where we actually lay up these treasures. And we all do this in some way. The question is, what kind of treasure 
are we laying up? Jesus says there's two options. Look at verse 19. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. What's he referring to here? These treasures on earth. Commentators say that likely in this context, when this was being written, it refers to collecting like really valuable clothing or precious metals. Um, not too far off necessarily from what we would experience today. Dan Doriani, as commentator, says that the equivalent for us today would likely be things like our houses and cars and furnishings and retirement plans and things like that. And Jesus says, hey, hey, don't get too focused on these things. Don't store up treasures on earth. Why? He gives sort of a practical reason and a spiritual reason. The, the practical reason is, hey, it's not going to last. It's going to decay. It's going to rot. Or it might get stolen. It's temporary. It's a bad long-term investment. There's a spiritual reason. Verse 21. Super important. Where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. So it's not just that it's a bad long-term investment. It's that our laying up of treasure is a forming of our hearts. It's shaping what we love. It's shaping the kind of people we're becoming. That what's most valuable to us. So our, our use of money reveals our hearts in two ways. It, it tells us what we love. It's sort of an indicator of what we love. Our bank statements show what our hearts value most. It's sort of like this arrow pointing out to say, all right, here, here's the tell. Here's what I really love. But it's also shaping what we love. Um, the more we lay up these treasures on earth, the more and more our hearts love treasures on earth. It's like this arrow going in that's shaping what we really love. And Jesus says, don't do that. Don't lay up treasures on earth. Instead, he says what? Lay up treasure in heaven. Look at verse 20. He says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. Again, practical reason, spiritual reason. Practically, um, this is a good long-term investment. It's eternal. Uh, it's an investment that's not going to decay. It's not going to rot. It's not going to get stolen. Spiritual reason where your treasure is, hey, there's your heart. Doriani says it this way. He says, when we give our money to God's causes... We show where our heart is. I saw this chart on a, like a personal finance blog this week that detailed how much um, like our small monthly subscription services start to add up over time. And, um, you know, it's $7 here, $10 here, $13 here. And um, there was this study that they did that, that, you know, asked people, like, just take a guess, like how much you think you spend in subscription services and, and the, the average that they guessed was around $83 a month. And then they, then they actually did, did the data and the research. And they said, no, 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 actually it's more like $213 a month. These people, you know, of course were shocked. But if you think about that, you know, it's $213 a month. That's over $2,500 a year. Over 10 years, that's over $25,000. It's these little things turn into bigger things, turn into really big things over time. And the point, of course, is not whether subscription services are good or bad, but rather that each yes that we make with our money is an investment into the type of person that we will become. And so we can little by little accumulate the things of this world and look up at the end of our lives and have a lot of money and stuff. Or we can little by little accumulate the things of God and look up at the end of our lives and be really rich in Him. And so the question for us to each reflect on is what, what treasure are you laying up? And how we answer that is important 
Because it's, they're, they're not just financial decisions that we're making. These are formative heart decisions. You're becoming more like that thing you invest in. Um, Aaron and I have had seasons in our lives where we were tithing and where we were not tithing. And I can think back on seasons where we were not tithing. And uh, there was a fear behind it. Um, if we give this money away, will we have enough? Uh, things feel too tight or too unstable or we, we don't know what's ahead. I don't want to relinquish this. Every, we need every penny. Um, there was this undercurrent of fear of giving away because if we give away, we might not have enough. But there was also this nagging sense of um, it just it didn't feel right to not be giving. There, it just Even if it meant a little bit extra for us, it just was like this feels off and it, we could feel God calling us to, to do more with our money. It was totally an issue of trust. Um, if I trust God by giving away some of this income, will he still provide? Will there still be enough? And, you know, the further down the road you get um, not giving, it's harder to start giving because you establish monthly patterns financially and, and spending and that sort of thing. So the longer you go without, the harder it is to jump in and start. I'll give just a few national trends on this. National trends make it less personal. Um, but uh, looking at a few different studies online, um, it's estimated that, that, that somewhere between um, 5 and 25% of church members give regularly to the local church. Somewhere 5 to 25%, again, depending on the church. And this is not broken down by denomination. This is generally in evangelical churches across the country. Um, average giving per household in, Christian, in Christians is around 2.5% of income. Average actual giving per year of churches of a similar size to ours per household is about $2,500 a year. Those are just averages, again, different denominations, things like that. But you, you can do the math and you start to think about sort of those numbers and those percentages. Obviously, there's room for those to grow. And if you were to think about sort of the church across the country uh, growing in, in, in the number of people giving and the amount giving, uh, that could be a real game changer. You think about what the church could do nationally. You think about how that could shape international missions and campus ministers and, and different mercy ministry partners and things like that. And again, you know, acknowledging these things, can, can, it can feel like sort of uncomfortable to dig in and talk about. But don't let the awkwardness of talking about money or giving to the church cause you to miss the point of what Jesus is saying here. What's he inviting us into? He's inviting us into a deeper relationship with himself. Uh, there is blessing for us in our laying up treasures in heaven because it means that our hearts will be more and more in line with the things of God rather than the things of the world. That we're actually going to be happier, more content, more joyful when we're giving generously to the things of God. And that is very counterintuitive. The whole Sermon on the Mount is very counterintuitive. Because our instincts would say that treasures on earth will make me happy. And Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is upside down. Actually treasures in heaven is what really are going to satisfy you. He says it's better to give than to receive. And, you, and you've felt that before. You know that to be true. But that's the first personal reflection he gives us. What am I treasuring? Secondly, what am I focused on? Look at verse 22. It says the eye is the lamp of the body. Similar to the first reflection here in, in Jewish literature, the eye and the heart kind of have a similar symbolic meaning and it sort of dictates what that person is all about, 
what your heart really loves, what your eye focuses on. As it goes for the eye, so it goes for the body. What we focus on, we begin to dwell on, we begin to love. Maybe you've noticed that if you've ever gotten really engrossed in reading a book or watching a TV series, where you get so focused on the story, you're so engrossed in it, it begins to shape how you think about your time outside of when you're not reading the book or you're not watching this show. I'm currently reading this book, Lone Survivor, way late to the game on this one, but it's this epic book about this Navy SEAL mission that goes awry. It's written from the perspective of the one guy that survives this whole mission. And I've gotten so engrossed in this book in the last week or two. Guess what I'm thinking about when I'm not reading? Like Navy SEALs and how epic this guy was and this whole story. And it's like shaping how I think uh, outside of just when I'm reading this book. This is just from one book. As it goes from my eye, it goes from my whole being. Um, the, the thing we're focusing on, the thing we're fixating on, it's shaping what we love, shaping who we're becoming. And Jesus gives us really two options again as to what we can focus on with our eyes. The first would be the things that are healthy or the light. Look at verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body, so what? So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of what? Light. What does that mean? If, if, if you focus and dwell on the things of God, it's going to lead to health and light for your whole being. And we know this on, on, a, on just a very practical level. Think about how you feel after reading your Bible for 30 minutes compared to how you feel after watching like reality TV for 30 minutes. Two very different feelings. Um, what we let in through our eyes shapes our whole being. And he gives us a contrast of things that are unhealthy or dark. Verse 23 it says, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If, the, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Doriani summarizes it this way. He says, by setting your eyes in the wrong place on the possessions of others, on graphic displays of affluence, you can harm your soul. This is where it ties into how we think about money and wealth. And, and this is true for us wherever we find ourselves financially because there, there's always someone with more and, and we can lock our eyes in on other people's stuff, on their wealth, and then we begin to tell ourselves, if only. Uh, if only I had that. If only I had that much. If only I had that home or was in that neighborhood or that type of car or that bank account. And, and the, the lie that we slowly begin to tell ourselves is that the good life is found in having just a little bit more than what we currently have. Which, by the way, this is a premise of every single commercial or ad that we see. Here's the equation. The ad tells us, here's how you're unhappy. Here's how to get happy. All you have to do is give us your money. That's every ad everywhere all the time. Here's your problem. Here's a solution. Give us your money and we'll fix it for you. And that's the, the lie that we can slowly begin to, to believe over time. And apparently, I don't know if this is true or not, we see between 6,000 and 12,000 ads per day. I don't know how that's physically possible to see that many. Let's say it's something much smaller like 80. Maybe it's not 6,000. Maybe if we see 80 ads a day. Uh, whatever the number is, uh, that, that's, those are 80 voices um, that are shaping us and stirring up discontentment within us, telling us this lie that we need just slightly more. That slightly more 
it, then what we have now is what we really need if we're going to be happy and content. Uh, Arthur Brooks is a professor at Harvard who re, does research in the area of happiness. And, and he confirms this when, when um, all of his research that he's done, he, he says that um, it actually shows, contrary to what we believe, that he says that the more that we get, the more we end up wanting. The more we get, the more we want. That, it, that more is never the right answer. That it's never enough. It only leads to wanting more. And, and this is why Doriani is saying that, that if we lock our eyes into wealth, if we focus our vision on getting more, it can actually harm our souls. Why? Because we're believing a lie. So what's the reflection we're invited into? It's just to honestly reflect and ask, right, what am I focusing on? And that might be sort of to think about that literally. What are my eyes staring at most of the day? You know, am I, am I scrolling Amazon whenever I'm bored? Or what are these influencers on Instagram? Like, what am I believing and how are those things really shaping me and creating a discontentment in me? And we just have to know that those moments are not neutral moments. But those are actually really formative moments that are shaping our hearts. I remember a seminary professor asking the class one time, he said, how many of you think that getting another $5,000 would solve your problems right now? And we were all in grad school at the time, just scraping by. And so the vast majority raised our hands. You know, yeah, that, that would $5,000 would help a lot. And I was sitting next to this guy who was a little bit further down the road in life and was a fairly successful businessman. He leaned over and he's like, not 5000 he said, maybe 50000 I was like, okay, yeah, 5000 50000 whatever is for you. But, but think about that for yourself. What's the thing for you right now? Could be an amount of money, but it's that thing that if you got it, it would fix things. Like, if we just had the kids' college funds ready to go, or if we just had money for a down payment on a house, or if we just had money to be able to get a vehicle, get reliable transportation. What's the thing for you that if you just had it, it's promising happiness, it's promising to fix your problems. Maybe here's another different way of thinking about it. Um, if nothing changed for you right now, from this point forward, financially or otherwise, would Jesus still be enough? If nothing changed, if uh, there was no more money, if the promotion never came, if the house never came, or maybe even the marriage never came, Whatever that thing is for you that gives you earthly hope, if you never got it and nothing changed from today moving forward, would Jesus still be enough? What am I treasuring? What am I focused on? Third question, what am I serving? Look at verse 24. Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Same theme. Jesus is building his argument. He puts a point on it here. The word for master here, it's the same word used for Lord. He's saying you can't serve two lords. Talks about it in terms of having a master like in slavery. Concept of slavery here would be different than the slavery that, that we're familiar with from an American history standpoint. But they're similar enough for, for us to understand the point that you can't be a slave to two different masters. Your allegiance and your time and your life is going to be given to just one master. That's just how it works. And he gives this contrast of either serving God or serving money. Some translations use the word mammon here, if you're familiar with this passage at all. That just, it's another way to talk about money or possessions or wealth or stuff. And this idea of being enslaved to money or stuff, 
It sounds a little overstated and extreme to us. Um, uh, not many of us would be like, yep, that's me. I am a slave to mammon. Uh, that, that's not really the category that we're in. But, but here's, here's what our sin nature does to us. Um, we can sit here and listen to a sermon about giving and, and laying up treasure in heaven. And it could be very easy to walk away and feel this pressure like, all right, we just have to do this. We have to give. You know, we heard a sermon this morning and now we have to give. And in our minds, having to give, it feels oppressive and restrictive and like it's impinging on our freedom. It feels like slavery, having to give. But to contrast that, the idea of spending our money however we want on ourselves to make ourselves happy, that sounds like freedom. We do whatever we want. No restraint. Freedom to use it how we want. I love Tim Keller's definition of freedom. He says, freedom is not the absence of restraint. Rather, freedom is the presence of right restraint. So apply that to our money. Freedom with our money is not the absence of restraint on our money, but it's the presence of right restraint on our money. And you've actually felt this before if you've ever followed a budget before, right? Because... um, a budget is very freeing to use, right? Suddenly you have the right restraints on your spending and so it doesn't feel so chaotic or anxiety-inducing. A budget is a restraint on our money that leads to freedom. Uh, Jesus is giving us a restraint on our use of money that is meant to lead to true freedom. It's the presence of a right restraint with Jesus uh, to hold loosely to money and possessions and to be able to give them away. That's true freedom. But to get on this treadmill of trying to to buy our happiness and to think that the more we spend for ourselves, the the happier we'll be, that's slavery, he's saying. All right, what's what's a practical, doable next step for you? A few places you could get started as you think about applying this in your own life and going through these reflections. Maybe you, un- you struggle to understand your own relationship with money. It just feels like weird and chaotic. And maybe you're in a relationship or maybe you're married and you have two people who are like, have two very different views of money. One place you can start is by writing out your money story. Aaron and I did this years ago, a couple years ago. Um, and it's basically where you just think about how you were brought up and you write about it in, in, con- in relation to money. What was money like in your family growing up? How is it talked about? How is it not talked about? What was, what was your, your economic level like growing up? How's that shaped you today? How's that come to bear as you make decisions? It's just, it's called your money story. So you write them out individually, and then if you're married, you can talk about it with one another and begin to understand what, why do I have these weird feelings about money? And maybe you have a spouse that has different feelings about money. But maybe that's a good place to start, is just to write out your money story, understand how you've been shaped by that. Maybe the next step is just Start budgeting, to start kind of following a budget to understand where is my money going? What does my spending say about what my heart really treasures and values? I don't even have enough data to know what that looks like. So maybe that's the next step is to start a budget. Uh, Maybe the next step is to start giving. Maybe you've just never given before and zero shame if that's where you're at. Uh, But but there is, and it doesn't, you don't have to go from zero to a hundred. Just just try it. Zero zero percent to one percent is a great step in the right direction. Maybe that's the next step. Or maybe you just sort of thought about giving 
um, in, a, in a sort of a random way, kind of here or there, not a lot of thought behind it. Maybe the next step is to say, what if we started thinking about 10% of our income? What if we work towards that? Or maybe you've been giving 10%, and the next step is to think about, what would it look like for us to increase a percentage over the next year or two? Um, what's, what's the practical, doable next step for wherever you're at right now? That'll be something that'll be good to wrestle through and even think about with a few trusted friends. And I'm, I'm not a financial advisor. Some of you are financial advisors. Probably have a lot better practical advice than I can give. And even with these words from Jesus, um, the main goal is not that we would walk out of here today with better ideas of how to handle our money. Uh, surely that's important. Jesus is speaking into it. It's a big deal. He talks a lot about money. Um, but, but new ideas of how to use money will not lead to lasting heart change for us. That's not going to transform the core of who we are. What will transform the core of who we are? Uh, 2 Corinthians 8, chapter 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Money is powerful. But do you know what is more powerful? The love of Jesus for you. Um, His love is stronger than your love for money. It can melt your heart. It can loosen your grip on your stuff. Um, The way forward in this is to draw near to Jesus. uh, To sit in his grace to you. The one who was rich. The one who was king of the universe. Had it all. But what did he do? He gave it up and became poor. So that we might be rich in him. And when that begins to seep deep down into our bones. We will stop living for the things of this world. For wealth. We'll care less about being rich in the world's eyes and care way more about being rich with God. Do you want to be rich with God? Um, Do you want an inheritance that that cannot be touched no matter what the market does? Um, Do you want to be so secure that an overdrawn bank account account won't lead you to despair and a fully loaded bank account won't lead you to pride and self-sufficiency? Um, If you want that security, give yourself to Jesus. Look at how he gave it all away so you could be eternally rich in him. You cannot serve God and money. And Jesus invites you into a love relationship with himself that will transform all of life, including how we use our money. Let's pray. Father... Your word speaks to very personal areas of our lives. And we thank you for that. Thank you that you care about these things. You really do. And God, we, we need your help. We need the help of your Holy Spirit to help us to see what, what does our money, our spending, our, our aspirations, our dreams say about what we really love and long for and who we're becoming. And we need your grace and your kindness to little by little reveal that to us. Our desire is not to be rich in the things of the world. Our desire is to be rich in you. And we confess that this is really difficult. So Father, meet us by your Spirit. Help us to journey together further into you. And help us to even grow in this way as we come to your table this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.